Welcome to Respect Life Radio. My name is Deacon Jeff Bennett with Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com. Today, our guest is Dr. Charles Nemeth. He's been an educator for over 40 years. He's presently the professor and director of criminal justice and director of the Center for Criminal Justice and Law and Ethics at Franciscan University. He's also an author of numerous articles and books. And uh, Chuck, thanks for joining us today. Uh, it's my pleasure. I'm very happy to, to be with you. Well, I had the pleasure of, uh, of reading your book because, as we were talking about before we went on, um, this book title, Finding Happiness in a Complex World, Rules from Aristotle and Aquinas, really strike home because the despair and the the anguish and depression that seems to be you know epidemic in our culture is is palpable and you just you read this book and you think this is it right everybody's looking for happiness but in all the wrong places i think that's undeniable i i also know that uh, i tried to write a book that would appeal to to younger people particularly high school and college students because i've worked with them uh, for so long, but I also try to appeal across, uh, aside from Catholic tradition, which I think is essential to this work, uh, it was good to have a, uh, you know, a pagan that agreed. <laughs> so with Ar- Ar- Aristotle, of course, is the classic pagan. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, as you probably well are aware, Thomas was in love with Aristotle his whole life. He used to designate him in his works uh, as the philosopher. And so uh, the two build on one another, and many many individuals indicated that in the end, St. Thomas simply Christianized or Catholicized uh, Aristotle and gave its fullness of, of brilliance, which is all through Aristotle's work on the nature of happiness and good and beauty, uh, his eudaimonia theory, and so forth and so on. So I think these are timeless suggestions for how to have a contented life. Not an exhilaratingly frenetic, uh, happy life every second of your existence, because that's simply not possible, but to have a contented, tranquil life. Well, and it gives kind of meaning to our life, right? It gives us direction. And when we know, when we focus on on God, that, you know, that's where true happiness lies. But it's interesting, as you go through the book and, and each of the chapters, you kind of parallel statements from Aristotle versus Aquinas. And, it, and it's amazing how similar they sound. And again, like you said, for what, thousands of years, people have known where happiness lies, yet we live in a world, and you kind of start the book off, really kind of going through all these places people seek happiness. And it, you know, as you read it, you see the stats in your book. I mean, the destruction and the despair is, I mean, it just jumps out of the pages at you. Yeah, and I think it uh, empirically demonstrates that. It's not enough to just uh, throw and bandy about opinions here. I try to give it a, a quality of authority, not only by using the quotes of Aristotle uh, and Aquinas, but also using the data uh, that is clearly out there. I mean, uh, from the, the, the rates of drug addiction to the rates of suicide uh, to, you know, the nun study, which comes later in the book, which talks about why these nuns... Uh, 
the nun study proves that nuns live long periods of time, don't seem to suffer from depression, don't seem to get Alzheimer's, don't seem to suffer the same afflictions that most other people uh, have. And it's because they really, when they live their lives, they're living exactly what Aristotle and Aquinas are telling us to do. So, yeah, I, I, so I think there's a certain amount of subjectivity in the book, which is natural. But I think there's a lot of objectivity in the book. If people take the time to look at the footnotes and look at the charts and the diagrams, it does leap out at you. And for people that don't want to look at it, of course, they'll they'll choose otherwise and they'll go down a path of less happiness than they would if they would follow these rules. You know, you talk about COVID, you know, there's drug abuse, suicide, broken families, uh, you know, just, just the fentanyl deaths that we see, you know, that, you know, over 100,000 a year now. I mean, all these yep. people searching for that contentment, that meaning, and they're looking, it seems, everywhere but God. And it, it really is, um, again, it, it's a sad story when we see the world, but we have to remind ourselves not to get caught up in that ourselves, right? It really is a reminder to us that happiness is, is found only in our creator, not through material things in our world. Yeah, in addition to fame and power doesn't bring us happiness, nor uh, hedonism or sensuality uh, as a basis for life or avoidance of children. All of the things are tracked in this text, which kind of lays out a series of of, uh, suggestions for young people. And for everybody, for that matter, uh, you know, to 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 see the world uh, not only through, you know, the, the necessity of having God in our life and a transcendent or a metaphysical uh, structure to our life, but also the, these are concrete steps that will eventually lead you to those conclusions. Cause, because, because even people like Cicero and Aristotle eventually landed up in their logic moving towards a perfect God. Uh, they may have had multi-gods or they were polytheistic, but they all believed uh, they had a supreme God. And that's where we had to eventually gravitate towards because that's our ultimate end. That's our ultimate purpose. And without that, uh, it's kind of a, a Sartrean nothingness, which is what a lot of our young people are living in. Uh, or a virtual nothingness, <laughs> which is another reason they're so distressed. But that's another story. You know, you see the world today and you think, man, how did we get here? But it was interesting. The other night, my wife and I were watching an old dragnet show. And <laughs> it was all these people searching for happiness in drugs. It's all about what makes me happy. And it was and, and you realize this just didn't happen within the last decade. This has been coming on and it's, it's been going on throughout history since the fall. But even in our modern times, this has been going on for decades and it really is something that it feels like it's culminating with all this gender ideology and all this, uh, you know, modernism that we live. And even within our church, we see it. Um, and it, it, it's a road to destruction, isn't it? Well, I think you're astutely correct about this. I I also think I've been around long enough to remember, uh, you know, the hippie age, <laughs> which I never liked hippies, but I, I was exposed to them because it was my generation or my time. Uh, but they, of course, their mantra, uh, pre- previous to them, the beatniks, but their their mantra was, if it feels good, 
uh, do it. And then, then, of course, that turned into another mantra, which is, I'm okay, you're okay, and it doesn't matter what you are, you're just okay. And then, of course, as you move into this relativistic uh, tyranny, because essentially that's what it is, you're trapped in this 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 uh, merry-go-round of uh, everything's fine, you find that nothing is fine because you're always like a, a gerbil in a, in a in a wheel spinning around and running around looking for happiness, and you never really discover it. I think that's one of John Paul II's greatest insights uh, is that m- modern people believe that uh, sexual liberation is just one example is is liberating when the very opposite is true. It becomes a slavishness. It becomes uh, a condition or a state in which you have no more free will, uh, or you're not exercising your free will or your reason correctly. You become you become uh, essentially slaves to the pleasure, and and that's the ultimate irony of uh, of the modern state of affairs. Uh, and it. it, it And it is true that it's infected literally every institution. Even our own church has been infected by this mentality. Uh, uh, you know that it that things are not necessarily really wrong. Uh, they have to be understood. You should la- not judge so quickly. I often tell my students when I teach a class in natural law here uh, that that Jesus is often typed today as uh, as an individual that never condemned or made judgments about things. Uh, so that I laughingly call this the purple Barney Jesus. You know, I love you yeah. and you love me and we're a happy family. But this is not what Jesus was like. Jesus had had clear moral instruction up and down the line constantly. And it's it's funny, it, it mirrors, uh, Thomas mirrors it. And, and strangely enough, Aristotle mirrors Jesus's instructions to us. So, you know, these are not uh, necessarily denominational uh, principles. They're universal principles. They're perennial principles. They're not relative at all. So that's why I call them rules. And when you get a chance, if uh, anybody sees finding happiness and you go to the last chapter, that encapsulates all the rules, one after another. And I often ask uh, people to tell me why that rule is not correct, and they have a hard time doing it. Well, because you do it in a way you ask yourself a question. And anybody you know who has any kind of moral compass or you know any kind of uh, real you know thought process says yeah that yeah that's that's not going to be good and and you see it and you mentioned that at the end of the book you know you have rules and recipes so I want to remind people that if you read the book it's not all doom and gloom right it's it's a reminder to us hey here's where we are but here's a way out and here's a way to do it by just asking yourself a series of questions and and it will lead you back to that path of of where happiness lies in in our creator i really appreciate you making that comment about finding happiness because it is not doom and gloom it's actually quite an optimistic book uh, about the power of the human person to shape habituate and follow a series of of, of virtues and avoidance of most 
every vice we can. Well, we're never going to be perfect, and we're all fallen. Uh, we all fall sometimes, and we all sin, and we all. I mean, I know some people that are better <laughs> better than others, but I, I, you know, I often I often say that my my wife is far more saintly than I have ever been, and it's true. But we're all trying, both of us, in our lives together. We've all tried to follow these general principles. You know, that's why we have been married for 51 years. We have seven children that are wonderful and beautiful. We've both worked hard all our life. We've never become materialistic in an excessive sense. We've never favored those things that other people seem to favor. And we've always kind of stuck to the virtue theory of Aristotle and Thomas. And really, for the most part, while we're not perfectly content, because no one is on this world, in this world, uh, we are fairly happy happy people. We've had a good life. We've been blessed. And hopefully that continues into the afterlife. That's part of happiness, right? You know, you look at your life and you see, you know, look, everybody has struggles. Everybody has crosses and challenges. But when you're following God, when you're when you have this happiness or, you know, as much as you can have here on this earth and your glass is half full, you see things from a different perspective as well. Right. It's not only hey, I just feel good inside. You have just a whole different perspective when things happen, even when difficult things happen. Yeah, I think that's uh, brilliantly posed. But I, but I, I also try to explain to people that being happy is not some state of exhilaration. It's not some yep. kind of mo- uh, emotional high. Now, of course, people can get emotional highs. We've all had them, the birth of our children, or we win a football game and we can't believe we did, or whatever whatever the thing is. But those are fleeting moments. They, they're they not really the, the refined definition of what either Aristotle or Aquinas mean about happiness. For them, it's a state of contentment, you know, an, an ability not to get into the highs or the lows, but to be right in the mean of the highs and the lows, which is which means that you're balanced about these things. So you're a, you're a balance of your own intellect and your own will, and you're capable of not getting distressed one or uh, or too depressed or too uh, or too happy about any particular thing. So I, I found that to be always very helpful to me because it lowers the unreasonable expectations that so many people have about being happy. They have to be happy, happy, happy uh, all the time. You know, that's why I got to get it. I got to get this and I got to get this plastic surgery. And I, and I, and I, you're constantly, I talk about plastic surgery a lot in this one section about the body, how the body becomes the source of uh, happiness. When in fact, that's a dead end street if there ever was one, but people chase it. They, they think that it's going to make them happy forever. But in the end, there's no happiness because you can't accept the fact that you're aging or that you're changing. And that's all part of the natural order and the natural process of living, being born and corrupting. Uh, and as Cicero said, death is the most natural thing you'll ever do in your life because you had to depend on other people to be born. But when you die, you die on your own. So in any event, I think that's an important feature for especially for young people who are under all these uh, visual uh, pressures to look a certain way, act a certain way, think a certain way. Uh, That's not going to make them happy uh, at all. They'll never be tranquil under those rules. Part of the, the beauty of the book and, you know, the word happiness, you know, the word love. Is no one even knows what the definition of that is anymore, right? I I love my cheeseburger 
or you know whatever these crazy things are. So we have we one we don't even know the definition. So to look for something that we don't even know what it is makes it very difficult. That's really well said. Yeah, uh, it, it does. They're not and they're not trained to think this way anymore. You know, they're mm-hmm. trained in the land and world of instant gratification. That's why they have the phones in their hands all the time. That's why they cannot not answer a text. That's why I tell my students, well, I they'll say things to me like, I texted you, I said I don't read them, <laughs> and I don't want to read them. How's that? And they don't and they don't understand that. <laughs> yeah. So I I drew the line in the sand at the emails. You know, that was it for me. Yep. I said, if you can't get a hold of me by email, there's no other way you're going to get a hold of me or by phone, <laughs> one or the other. But, uh, yeah, they, 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 live in the, they live in this land of just constant, instant gratification. And that, that is uh, completely implausible under a theory of happiness. But that's the world they live in. And if you think of drugs or all those things, right, what made you in this state of euphoria last time, now you need even more to get to that. And it becomes more and more and more and more. And it just leads you down this road of not happiness. It's just moments of exhilaration or so you think. And it, 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 it's, that's, that's how you get these addictions, right? They just keep, you have to do more and more and more to get the same result that you had, you know, last, the first time you started. Absolutely. And then uh, of course it also proves that these, addictive substances do work they work for the for the fleeting moment of time and for people that are distressed and depressed uh that's how they get rid of the distress and the depression but yet they don't realize they're they're adding on to their stress and depression and in time they'll be consumed by it so and that, and that that is true for so many things I talk about. How much wealth do you need? How much how much money? You know, when you meet greedy people, you say, "Are they happy people?" They generally are not. I mean, even a person like Andrew Carnegie, who I mentioned in the book, who spent his whole life amassing uh, multi millions for his time. Uh, what did he do as he was getting towards death? He gave it all away because he was so distressed about how he made so much money on the backs of other people without rewarding them. And, you know, in that sense, he found a little more happiness before he left this earth because uh, he left a tremendous legacy behind in, 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 in the United States and across the world, actually. Well, and it reminds me, I remember getting out of college and telling my dad, when I make $100,000, I'll have it made. And he just looked at me and he said, you know what, no matter how much you make, it'll never be enough. The toys will have to get bigger. The, the trips will have to get bigger. You'll never be happy. And I was like, you don't know what you're talking about. And boy, that couldn't have been, that couldn't have been more true. Yeah, and in fact, there is a couple of studies in Finding Happiness which discuss, like, what is the threshold amount of money before the depression starts, <laughs> which I thought was quite fascinating. A couple of major university studies that looked at the happiness level of people and how much money they make. And there's a, like a cutoff point where, you know, yeah. your happiness gets in the mean and you have enough money to live on, you have enough to live comfortably, but it's only after the excesses start in. And this is, again, another one of uh, Aristotle's great contributions to our thinking about how we find happiness. It's never, ever, ever the excess of anything, nor is it the defect of anything. It's always the median of everything uh, when you measure what types of human behavior make you happy or not. So you're looking for the moderate means, the moderate 
middle of things rather than the, you know, I have $100 billion or I have two cents. Uh, neither of those systems work, but something in the middle seems to work better. And that's true for a lot of human behavior, whether it's power. This is, this is part of our frustration with what we see in, in uh, our political class. They have, they have no boundaries on their acquisitions of power and what they'll do to get power. And it's very distressing to watch. Cause in the end, I don't think they're very happy people. I think they're constantly lusting after power, and so they can never really be content in what they're doing. Well, and I think that's right. You see, I mean, all of them are sucking on lemons when they're on TV. And these are people who, you know, come in and get the power and then, right, they, they acquire tremendous wealth on top of it while somehow making a, a salary that wouldn't indicate that that would happen. And they are miserable. They are angry, right? They are, you know, out wanting to kill babies and do this. It's all about uh, this this power and this wealth that in the end, they don't even look happy. I mean, it's not even something that you would look at and say, geez, I want that. It's like, geez, I don't know what they've been drinking, but I don't want any of it. <laughs> well, I've I've actually featured some of those wonderful politicians that 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 not only argue the uh, for excessive amounts of wealth, they'll also argue for the redistribution of wealth, which of course yep. has been demonstrated repeatedly never to work and never has worked and never will work. But you know, when I when I was teaching at John Jay in New York City before I came to Franciscan and I retired out of there, there was our economics department at that university had nine faculty and they were all Marxists. And I used to get into it with them all the time. Tell, tell me what Marxism has done for the world in terms of, you know, human contentment, human misery, <laughs> however you want to look at it. But their answer was always, well, they didn't do it right. We're going to try it another way. And, and we see a lot of that going on right now in the, Washington, D.C. You know, we have this this notion that if we just keep spending, everyone will get happier. But I don't see any happiness down there at all. And I don't no, think the citizenry a, is being elevated into happiness with these kinds of programs either. The more you give away, the more you hand out, the less dignity the human person has. You just create a tremendous dependency, and, and happiness is not found in dependency unless you're depending on our Lord and then using the gifts he's given you to go out and share. It's not about hoarding or just what can I get? It's about what about loving neighbor and, and doing that in a way that really does change our life. Because when we're focused on ourselves, I mean, what what a more boring topic than to be focused on ourselves and just try to get what we want because it's never enough. And it does lead to this despair. And how many people are on antidepressants? I mean, it's like they hand them out like uh, Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, with the, we live in the pharmacological age. There's a pill for everything. And, uh, you know, how, how much does that help the, uh, the rate of mental distress and emotional disturbance? Not very much. So, again, it's, the, it's also the notion that man can control everything and man doesn't control everything. And man's barking up all the wrong trees uh, for things. And, and that's why the pills are increasing as well, because it's always a dead end street, these things. Uh, it's, it's, it's like the new feminist model that is arguing for legalizing prostitution because this empowers women. And, 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 and I, I, I often hear this feminist critique, and, and I, I'm saying, nay, 
introduce me to a happy prostitute, introduce me to somebody who's lived that lifestyle that is a contented, tranquil, happy human being. I've never met one. I, I've been involved in the criminal justice system for a long, long time, and they are the most distressed uh, internally as well as externally in their, phys- uh, their physical uh, visages, what they look like, what they feel, the diseases they have, and all the problems. And it, 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 it's amazing that, that we actually tolerate this kind of thinking when, when in the end it's not empowerment, it's enslavement and destruction of the human person without any possibility of happiness at all. Well, you'd be better off finding a unicorn than, uh, than a happy prostitute. So you're right. <laughs> right. And, you know, right. one thing I really like about the book, and especially bringing, uh, you know, Aristotle into it, you know, you don't have to be somebody of great faith, although that's obviously that's where we want to get to, to kind of reason through and understand what's going on and, and, and where happiness lies, right? You can be an agnostic, you could be someone struggling as an atheist. But you can reason out and find yourself understanding who God is and where happiness lies if you just follow kind of the thinking upon Aristotle. And as you said, you know, Aquinas kind of took the ball and ran with that. Oh, there's no question about that. And I... uh... There's a there's a reason why Aristotle is in this book on happiness, finding happiness. But also, I wrote another book where I compared Aquinas with uh, the great Roman uh, thinker Cicero. And the reason why I showed, did that comparative analysis twice is because I I wanted to. Uh, shut down my critics, okay? Because I often get people who criticize that I I'm nothing more than a uh, churchman, you know, or uh, you know somebody who writes for what the Vatican wants to hear. The, though they don't seem to realize <laughs> the Vatican is not always happy with Thomas Aquinas, <laughs> but <laughs> but that's a, that's another story for another day. But I think the the, the analysis of Cicero and the analysis uh, of Aquinas showed that they both reached similar conclusions on moral dilemmas in the natural law. So that was the first book ever written uh, about that topic, where you're comparing the Roman pagan uh, with the angelic doctor. And, then, and the same is true here. It's the, it's the Greek pagan with the angelic doctor. And it's amazing how wide it, that swath is of people you can pull in. Uh, though both of them were not uh, agnostics, and both of them were not uh, without religion. I mean, it, it, it's not our religion, right. obviously, but right. but but they were both spiritual people. When you read uh, something like Cicero's uh, book on the laws, De Legibus, it's a masterpiece of religion in many respects. His book on the nature of the gods. Uh, uh, you know, sometimes you close your eyes and you say, "Sure, he isn't Catholic," even though he, he was, uh, you know, uh, forty years before Christ was born. But in, in the same is true with Aristotle with many of his works. You read the Nicomachean Ethics and some of his other works, you, you can see the foretelling, almost the prophetic nature uh, of them anticipating, you know, Christian tradition. Uh, and this is another thing my students here at Franciscan enjoy so much seeing, that when you read these works and you see, well, he sounds like he is a, a Catholic. And in many respects, that's what gives us the, the grand possibility of pulling in all kinds of people into this theory. Respect Life Radio is produced by Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Denver. And remember, you can listen to all of our shows at respectliferadio.com.